Okay, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ to open the Scriptures together, to discuss our mutual salvation, to encourage one another unto love and good works. And it's a privilege, Lord, to do so. And we pray for the uh, saints around the world that also listen in, that you would be with them and bless them and uh, help them find the fellowship that they need so badly. And we commit this Sunday to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in 2 Corinthians. And we're on chapter 5, verse 15. It's in a few weeks because we had the J. Howard and then we had the program. So it says in verse 15, very important gospel verse, by the way, he died for all, 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, in this section, we've discussed that it does teach substitutionary atonement. And remember, we had a little discussion on theories of the atonement that have been around in church history. And... Um, one of the important truths that we pointed out is that ultimately we should pay attention to historical developments and doctrine as it's been understood historically in the church. But ultimately the scripture decides. Okay? And the, the substitutionary atonement is taught very, very clearly in scripture. He died for all. Remember verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live. Now, um, who are they who live? I think it's believers. Yep, because if we weren't believers, we'd still be dead in sin. Okay? So people who believe are living, and so... Because he died for us, and we live because of his life and his atonement, that the work he did for us, what is Paul's instructions for the future? Don't live for yourself. Okay? Yeah. So I think the I think it's a valid. Would you say it's a valid implication? That, that it says that they who live might no longer live for themselves. It, it's a valid implication, I think, that it meant that everybody was doing that in the past. Okay? So I would say that according to this scripture, if we're not living for Christ, we're living for self, even if we're doing good religious deeds. Is that, is that true? In other words, one way to live for self is to be altruistic and go out and do good deeds. Now, yeah, because it's works righteousness. You try. You're. I went in yesterday. I had my sermon already. I had my Sunday school already. I had everything done. So I went in yesterday to write, start writing another chapter on my book. And I was writing about. I'm writing a book about the emergent church, and I just started chapter six. And chapter six is called "Undefining the Means of Grace." How does God change lives? How does God work in, in believers to conform us to the image of Christ? And so I was reading some more essays out of this. Uh, this one book has been a, a, a great uh, thing for my research. It's called An Emergent Manifesto of Hope, and there's 23 essays in there. And what's interesting about these essays is that only, only one of them even mentions anything about atonement. They're all about the social gospel, okay? And this one I was reading yesterday, this guy was creating a new monastery. So they're, they're reinventing the monastic movement. And their whole thing is to go out and do good deeds and, and save the planet. Okay, now that seems to be kind of a selfless thing to do, to go out and do good deeds. But is that living for Christ on his terms? Yeah, yeah, it's not. Self is still deciding what? Okay, I'm still on the throne, and I'm deciding the best way to be religious is to do the social gospel. 
And I'm not willing to submit to the claims of Christ, what's revealed in the Scripture, and, and what the cross is all about. Okay? Did you notice um, that, that Mother Teresa's been in the news lately? Yeah, that they found some, what was it, letters or memoirs or something? And did, did anybody read about that? What? Do you want to give a report? No, she doesn't want to give a report. Who wants to give a report about Mother Teresa? self-revealing diary-type thing about her doubts about her faith and uh, what she was doing. So it was kind of, I want to give my opinion on it. It, would, it showed her as a human being, not a saint. Okay, so she, but she, she never really had any assurance of, of, of being right with God. Okay, and good works... You, you, no matter if you are the best humanitarian person that ever lived, and everybody would consider her that, it is still just good works, and good works don't give you assurance of salvation. If you don't understand the cross and, and the atonement and, and salvation by faith, then you don't end up with assurance. No, and, and when or read, salvation, no, for that matter. And when you read, read those, it was that she was so tormented about her future that she felt she had to do this and she wasn't quite acceptable unless she did more and more good works. How much is, is necessary? So it's very evident in her letters that she was doing this out of fear, not out of, out of something that she was you know, grateful for God or what he'd already done to her or for her. So it was, a, it was very much a, a self-serving kind of giving that she was doing. She's more convinced and more fearful than anything else. Because she belonged to the Catholic Church that doesn't give anybody any hope for salvation or assurance of salvation. Okay, so he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. But notice who we're supposed to live for. Not the greenness of planet Earth, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We're supposed to live for Christ. Okay? And so living for Christ means that he determines the means of what life is supposed to be all about. And that was the point of this chapter I'm writing. In other words, do we look around us in the world and say, well, I think this would be a good way to serve God because what's appealing to me, or does God himself tell us how he's going to work in our lives and what the terms are? Okay, so now this behalf is that huper again, and we were talking about that a few weeks ago, Used uh, also in 521, 2 Corinthians 5:21. It's also used in Galatians 1:4, and so therefore this is teaching vicarious substitutionary atonement. Christ died on our behalf, and I believe that there's overwhelming biblical evidence that the correct doctrine is substitutionary atonement. Previous to meeting Christ, we were all living for selves. We were doing what we thought and on our turn. So uh, it also says here, him who died and rose again on their behalf. So there's kind of a shorthand for the gospel itself. Why was it necessary for Christ to die on our behalf? He was the sinless substitute, right? Okay. Elizabeth. We do not have to pay for our own sins. Amen. And that is what the substitutionary atonement is what's missing in the Catholic Church. Mother Teresa felt that she had to continue to suffer to pay for her own sins. And one of the, the little known facts about Mother Teresa is that she died with millions of dollars in a bank account. <laughs> The reason she did that is because the people that she cared for were not even given um, medication to ease their pain because she felt it was good for them to suffer for their sins. Wow. So she continued to suffer, they suffered, and she died a very wealthy woman. Um, and, and so that's what's lacking in the Catholic Church is the belief of the Okay. Thank you. 
All right. Um, died is aorist, aorist active participle. And what that means is he voluntarily died. He delayed his life down. Yes? I heard that explain on is that I couldn't become your savior because I have the same disease you do, sin. Yeah. So the only one that could become our savior is one that wasn't afflicted with the same disease before Christ. Amen. Besides that, the word says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Amen. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's commentary on this found in Romans 6, 1 through 6, and in verses 11 and 12. So let's go there. Romans 6, 1 through 6. Compare Scripture with Scripture. It says here, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Now, what do you think the answer to that is? <laughs> no, okay, good. <laughs> All right. And Paul answers it himself. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Notice there is this idea that one died, all died. That's what we were studying in 2 Corinthians 5. One died, all died. So that when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we died to our old life. We died to living for self. We died to living for sin. And repentance is, uh, means to turn. In fact, that's a, a synonym used in the New Testament. Remember, Paul said to the Thessalonians, you turned from dead idols to serve the living God. So when I preach the gospel during the sermon, I often mention repentance, and then depending on how much time I have, will explain what it means, what God expects. What does it mean to repent? The idea of turning is, is another uh, way of describing it. And what it means was, Previously, we were serving self. Now, self may be served in a multitude of ways. You can serve self by doing good religious works. You can serve self by living a riotous life of debauchery. You can serve self by just trying to be a good citizen. I mean, there's a lot of ways to serve self. But the only way to serve God is to come to him on his terms. So repentance is turning from living for self, because that's what we were doing, according to 2 Corinthians 5.15, and turning to God to come to him on his terms that we might serve him in newness of life. So back to, to Romans. So that we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 4, that's the point. Walking in newness of life is serving him, living for Christ rather than self. Verse 5, for if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, our old self, literally man, the old man, was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Then in verse 11 and 12, even so consider yourselves, or reckon yourselves, to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. So that is another description. They're using baptism as an analogy of death, burial, and resurrection. And having coming out of the grave, we have new life and we serve God. Any comments on this? Okay. Let's uh, start with Keith. Could you look up John 5:42 and, and Leif, Galatians 2:20, Karen, Titus 2:14, and Troy 1 Peter 4 2 through 4. 1 Peter 4 2 through 4. So John 5 and verse 42. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourself. Is that what it says? 
Okay? I know you, that you don't have the love of God in yourself. So I think the point is, that's the nature of the fallen man. So they're not, they don't, we, we, we by nature don't love God, we love self. Even though we might be religious. Galatians 2.20, very famous verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. Let the child live in the flesh. Let the faith in the Son of God. Okay, uh, Titus 2.14. Oh, 14, that's better. <laughs> who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So there, again, is the idea he gave us for, himself for us to purify for himself. And the people of God are zealous for good deeds. And he calls us to that. Remember the same thing in Ephesians where it describes salvation by grace through faith? And, he, and, then, and then after that, it says, created by him unto good works, which we before ordained that we should walk in them. Yes. And what, so what we're saying is that if you see somebody doing bad works, beating people, abusing people, and so forth. That's not a Christian act. No. If we there's see, no, there's if no uh, ministry called Christian wife beater. Or something. <laughs> however, however, if you see people like Mother Teresa, your Mother Teresa on one side of the street handing out food, or another person on the other side of the street handing out food, the fact that there's a good work going on doesn't mean they're a Christian either. Right. What, what ultimately the good where you, Christians will do good works, we're commanded to be generous. If we're not generous, you have an ungenerous Christian, it's almost an oxymoron. There's something defective in their Christianity that they would act that way. But the fact that you're generous doesn't mean you're a Christian. And ultimately, if you're not generous with the good news, again, as Mother Teresa, they would, she would have people come and, and she'd care for them and they'd die and they'd never hear the gospel. She didn't preach the gospel to the Hindus that would come. Yeah. And that's a wicked work. That's a wicked work, Defined yeah. by God, that's the worst work you could do. So if I ease you into hell as painlessly as possible, that's a bad thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, well, well stated. <laughs> um, by the way, that's a corollary to something I'm going to have in my application to the sermon. Today I'm going to preach... Uh, not about baby Jesus. I'm going to preach about the incarnation and the preexistent Lord from John chapter 1. But this doctrine of who Christ is and the doctrine of the salvation by grace through faith and the pro- proclamation of Christ is so important that John, in, in 1 John 4, 1 through 6, makes that the difference between Christ and Antichrist. Okay? Um, The way you know that someone is speaking by the Spirit of God is not that you see them doing good deeds or talking about religion. It's that you see them confessing the gospel. That's the test. And at Faith at Risk, I did a whole sermon on that from dozens of verses to prove that the true test of a work of the Holy Spirit is that Christ is preached and the gospel is confessed. And that, you can be assured, is the Holy Spirit. Because it says in um, 1 Corinthians 12 that no one will say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Now, again, some of these little phrases are shorthand. Okay? The Mormons will say Jesus is Lord, but they're not confessing Christ. Yeah, their Jesus is the devil's brother, as we heard a couple weeks ago. So, um, uh, that... That's not saying you can say Jesus is Lord, but you have a different Jesus. That's not what Paul's talking about. But that's shorthand. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Shorthand for the incarnation, the whole doctrine of the incarnation. So if you see someone confessing Christ and do, doing good works, then you see that there's a work of, spirit, of the Spirit going on because they have been created unto good works, as it said, yes. And it's interesting, too, because a lot of people like to justify being fuzzy about what the gospel is on the basis of being kind to other people or being inclusive and nice. But the problem with it is that bad doctrine has real consequences, and it really does cause real damage and real pain. So to avoid setting a clear line between what's true and what's false is not a loving thing to be doing at all. I totally agree, Karen. <coughs> Great. <laughs> it's, not, it's not loving to teach error. It's not loving to be open-minded 
to things that will uh, destroy people's souls. Okay, it's loving to speak the truth. The Bible says to speak the truth in love. Yes. I'm just going to. I'm looking at writing an article for Worldview Weekend, kind of more of a pokey in the eye and see what happens. But the concept is, just to say, if I come up to you and say, God is love, and you see all these stickers around, that made me think about it. I called somebody up, and that God loves you was at the end of the message. If I say that to a non-Christian or somebody who's following in a way that's not, not salvific, and I say, God is love, and don't complete this message by saying, and he died for you, and his blood was shed for you and for the, to avert your sins, but just proclaim a loving, nice, fuzzy guy that's God, I'm doing a disservice and it's actually pushing people the wrong direction. And the, the, the phrase, God is love with nothing more, is a damnable phrase that is leading people away from the God who came to save us from the wrath of God himself. Yeah, so we believe that God is love, but you have to tell people the actual expression of that love is through the cross. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that those who believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So included in that idea is the danger of perish. You have God as love without talking about the incarnation. You're preaching something defective and damnable. Yes. I think one of the things that people forget and, and often don't understand or discern is that God, because of his holiness has a right to have a holy hatred towards sin, and that is part of his love. It's all, his love is all-encompassing, even his hatred towards sin. That's what Jonathan Edwards said. 1 Peter 4, 2 through 4. In that he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God and not human desires, for the time has passed was sufficient for you to do what the non-Christians desire, you live then in debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, drinking bouts, and wanton idolatries. So they're not astonished, or so they are astonished when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness, and they vilify you. Your old buddies vilify you for not going to their party anymore. That literally happens. They they think that it's an evil thing that you serve Christ. And uh, uh, I've said this before, I have witnessed this, I don't know how many times, where somebody is accepted by their family, their religious family, even though they're living a total life of sin and degradation, and then they're converted to God through the gospel, and their family's all worried about them. Oh, no, they quit doing drugs. Now we're worried. <laughs> now, what's that problem? What's going on there? Well, I know, but I've seen it happen. And I've seen it happen with teenagers uh, that were converted whose parents forbade them to go to church because they didn't want them hearing the gospel. Literally, I, I, I met a young lady when I was in Bible college who had been living a horrible life of sin, and her mom didn't care, didn't even care when she came home at night. And when she got saved, her mom forbade her to go to church. You can go out with your drug-taking bodies to wild parties. That will bother me. But if you're going to go to that church where they preach the Bible, you're grounded. Can you imagine? That's how much people hate the gospel. Yes. Yeah, I can testify to this. I was a drug a alcoholic and drug addict, and I got saved. And, you know, the, after, the day after I got saved and the following days after, people thought I, they thought I was on drugs because I was so full of joy and peace. <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't get me to party anymore, so yeah, they did vilify me. Yeah. How can you be happy? We never heard of that. Yes. Our daughter, Jessica, had a good friend that um, lived just a few blocks oh, from yeah. us. And we brought her to church with us every Sunday, and she went to youth group. And um, she eventually became a Christian, and her parents came and talked to you because they were all concerned because they had this nice, normal teenager and who was a very kind, very um, warm, loving person, wasn't rebellious, just a normal teenager, yeah. but now all of a sudden was what they called a, quote, Jesus freak, and they were very concerned. 
Yeah. So they, they were really... But they, but they allowed her to come. They allowed her to come, but they yeah. were very, very concerned. I think one of her parents was an atheist, actually. But um, the interesting thing about that young lady is she came to church with us all the way up through high school. We picked her up, brought her to church, and she went to Crown College, graduated, found a Christian husband, and we see her now and again, and she's raising kids and serving the Lord. <laughs> Praise God. But, yeah, they were concerned about her going to church. But I, I've seen worse cases than them. At least they talked to me and were willing to say, okay, what is she getting into? And I explained the gospel. Um, so she, can't, she could serve God and, and so on. But it doesn't, didn't Jesus say that he was going to divide families? Yes. Yeah. I had this experience when I was in Bible college of um, being a part of a personal evangelism class. And um, one weekend, there was a Lowell Lundstrom conference out at the Anoka High School. And they, they needed counselors in the worst way. And... Um, of course, I volunteered because I had been well-trained. And um, I had the exciting experience uh, on that Saturday night of being able to talk with five children, ranges, ranging in ages from 5 to 11. And um, then, of course, the next day, I called each one of their parents, and um, two of the children were from the same family. And when I called that particular family, the mother began asking me questions. And lo and behold, I ended up sharing the gospel with her over the telephone. And she got saved. <laughs> God bless so you, Cheryl. When I went to college, when I went to school the next day, I couldn't get to my personal evangelism class fast enough. I was <laughs> practically jumping up and down. God bless you, dear sister. This uh, scholar is talking about Paul's uh, message here. <clears throat> says. This guy's Dr. Martin says this paradigm is that God's love demonstrated in Christ's death and resurrection compels a Christian to live a life dedicated wholly to God. In turn, this motive uh, power touches other Christians for it calls us to reflect God's love by exhibiting total dedication to fellow Christians. But unfortunately, Paul has not been accepted as such as an apostle. Instead, because he exemplified God's power through weakness, his credentials as a minister of the gospel are in doubt, in Corinth, that is. Desiring, desiring a powerful leader and preacher, some of the church at Corinth have attacked Paul as being inferior. Um, the underlying premise is that a strong preacher would not have his life characterized by weakness and tribulation. This, however, was the secret of Paul's <laughs> stand. Yes. I was going to talk about you. Uh, shared about people... The Corinthians had lawgivers come in that raised the standard of what the external righteousness above what was Christian liberty. And Paul lived in Christian liberty. I was thinking about Christmas, how some people say I'm more holy than you, I'm not going to celebrate Christmas, or that they start defining things uh, in this season that are much different than what the Bible oh, says. Oh, I was going to mention that. I got a phone. Yeah, I got a phone call from somebody. Interesting question. I don't know. This was somebody who comes to our church, but somebody called and said, is Christmas a sin? Is it a sin to have Christmas? And, well, hold on. Now, there's, there's legitimate reasons to think that. Um, because this person was trying to witness to a Jewish friend, and the Jewish friend had looked up, which is easy to do. Yeah, okay, just look up Christmas, and you find out it was a pagan holiday invented by Roman by uh, Constantine to pacify uh, the Roman Empire because they had uh, this returning sun was the celebration. Because, well, actually, that's, somebody was just talking about this. T today the, the sun comes back, okay? Or the conquering sun, that was what it was. Okay? So, and so you can go back, and I saw an editorial in the paper by an atheist explaining a pagan 
uniqueness of Christmas. And the atheist was exactly right. Okay, so that, that's a legitimate question then. Is it knowing all this, is it a sin to have Christmas? Now, here's, here's my take on that. Usage determines meaning, all right? And the days of the week, the names of the days of the week are all pagan. Thursday is Thor's day, okay? Yeah, Saturday is Saturn's day. And, and all, there's a pagan god be, behind every day of the week. Is it a sin to call the days of the week what they are? Well, no, we wouldn't say that. Now, here's what I would say. Christmas is a word whose meaning now is it's the traditional day that Christians celebrate the birth of Christ. And that's basically your dictionary definition. All right? Do we believe Jesus was born on, on December 25th? No, we, I, I don't know, I don't think anybody actually believes Jesus was born on December 25th. Do we, does the Bible command us to celebrate Christmas? No. But does it forbid it? Let's look at a passage. Um, I, I was going to mention this because it, it comes up, and, and I, I thought it was a very interesting phone call, and I, I pointed a guy to this uh, Romans 14 passage. There are people who are... Uh, very uncomfortable with Christmas because of its pagan origins or maybe with the way their family understands it. Yeah, yeah, or Christ's Mass. There's the Catholic stuff. I mean, I was that way. When I was a new Christian, I hated Christmas. But I couldn't get away from it. <laughs> Remember, Didi? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, I got by for a few years because I wouldn't allow it into our house. But then we went down to Iowa, so then it was Grandpa's sin. <laughs> <laughs> So the little kids got to do all their fun stuff, and I could wash my hands of it, see? (laughs) Well, um, let's look at Romans 14. Uh, Verse 5. Oh, wait a second. Yeah, verse... Where does it talk about observing days? I'll start with verse 5. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. And he who gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he doesn't eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself. Well, the point is, this may, maybe you don't know this, there's not a single annual holiday that's ordained under the New Covenant. There's not a single one. We're not commanded to keep a day by the Lord. All right? So, because we're not commanded to, we're at liberty not to. Right? We're at liberty to not observe any special day because we're not commanded to. Now, in the Old Testament, it wasn't like that. They had a whole list in Leviticus 23 of the feasts that they had to do, annual feasts, and they were required to do it. And if they refused to, they'd be cut off. Like, if you didn't go to the Day of Atonement, you're cut off from the people. You had to do that, and you're still unforgiven. But under the New Covenant, what's ordained is the Lord's Supper. And interestingly, the Lord's Supper, it it doesn't tell us how often to do this, to do the Lord's Supper. It says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance. Okay? So as often as you eat, you eat in remembrance. So we are even at liberty to how often we have the Lord's Supper. But that is ordained. But it's not tied to the calendar. Okay, so if you read the New Testament, you don't see a calendar holiday that's ordained in the Bible. But when Paul discusses it, he says that some in the church have days that they observe. And they're free to do so. Okay? So based on my analysis of the New Testament, I told the guy that asked me the question, you're free to celebrate Christmas but you're not free to celebrate it and say this is the day for the returning sun or this is a pagan holiday, okay? And, and really, it's very similar to, if you want to think about it, it's very similar to meat offered to idols in, in Corinth, all right? Paul said this. said, you can eat anything you find in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. 
He didn't say, don't ask any questions. <laughs> like, how long has this been dead? <laughs> but but he, he says, no, or, 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 or is it supposed to be crawling? <laughs> no. Oh, no, never mind. Uh, he, said, <laughs> he didn't say you can ask any questions, but don't ask any questions for conscience sake. Maybe somebody did sacrifice it to an idol. Who knows where it came from? But he said, the idol is nothing. And it's not, the meat's not going to hurt you. But if somebody invites you over and says, I'm offering this to the idol. Will you join me? No. Then you can't do it. Yeah, then you can't do it. Okay? So if somebody said, we're having a celebration at our house on December 25th, and we're going to celebrate Saturnalia, or uh, uh, the conquering sun, and we're going to offer to idols, because that's how we believe, don't go. That would be wrong. But if somebody is saying, we traditionally celebrate the Lord's birth on this day, even though we don't know when he was born. That's okay. Uh, someone then says, calls Christmas a sin like you did, then you were sinning? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Have you heard my story? <laughs> what year was this? About 80, mid-80s. Sometimes during the mid-80s. Remember the Jesus People Church used to have the gospel according to Scrooge? Remember that? Okay, and this one, they had a very special one because they were going to film it and put it on national TV. And they had uh, Hollywood actors and everybody. And this is when they were down at the State Theater. So I went to that. And I wouldn't allow the kids to have a Christmas tree. All right? That, that, that was, and they were sad little kids because they didn't get to have a Christmas tree. All right? And so I wouldn't allow it. And I went to the Gospel according to Scrooge. And I got convicted of being Scrooge. <laughs> So, I, so I, came, I went to Menards and got a fake Christmas tree and brought it home. <laughs> there, I have your Christmas tree. <laughs> bah, bah. <laughs> All right. Anyhow. So God brought you liberty. Yeah. I decided they could have it. And I, Yeah. And, and then I made a star of David to put on it out of cardboard in um, Aluminum foil, and it's still we still have the same old tree and the same star. <laughs> so there, now everybody in the world knows that I, I'm a pagan. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> it's not a sin to have a tree, but it would be a sin to have a tree and say this is offered to the pagan gods. If you if you say this is just our decor that we like to do, or like a wreath or something, are you free to do that? All right, that was our Christmas discussion. <laughs> So now everybody knows Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Uh, a, week, a week from today, Sunday, we will be. I don't. Uh, Lord's Supper, we do that at Easter, right? Yeah, Christmas Eve. We just keep following the tradition. <laughs> we could, yeah, we could. All right, let's go to verse 16. So we're living for not for ourselves, but for Christ. So therefore, from now on, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Oh, this verse is important. We may spill over into next week. This one has been just making more sense to me all the time as far as applications. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Now, that always confused me. What, is, uh, what does it mean we knew Christ according to the flesh? Well, the Corinthians had never actually seen Christ. I believe that what it means is we saw him through fleshly eyes. In other words, we didn't see him as the crucified Messiah who was raised from the dead. We just saw him as some sort of a religious leader. That's knowing him after the flesh. Um, in other words, to know Christ as your flesh would mean to view him wrongly. Yes. I was just going to say my translation, maybe others here have it. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Okay. Worldly point of view. Well, that's probably what it means. So that's more of a conceptual translation. Is that the NIV? Yeah. Yeah, that, that shows you the difference on translations. Where the New American Standard is a literal translation, so sarks is uniformly translated flesh in the NASB. Whereas the NIV is more of a conceptual translation. 
And so they're doing a little of the work for you and say, okay, Sark's flesh means worldly point of view, right? Um, now, here's something that struck me. You tell me if you think this is a valid application. A lot of churches group people according to their former sin. No, I kid you not. All right. Yeah, yeah, you got all the, okay, the drunkards, you go to this room. The homosexuals, you go to this room. The adulterers, you go to this room. The... <laughs> yeah, yeah, some people, there's not enough room to go around. <laughs> A good one, Brian. <laughs> I had every sin. Where do I go? <laughs> Somebody else might be in that category. All right. Now, or, or, I thought about this. What about these recovery groups? Okay. Now, the whole idea, to me, can't really be biblical. Because recovery assumes there was no sin nature to start with. Because you're going to recover what you would have been had you not been in the sin that you are in. Okay. And now, and, and if you get in really deeply into this, and I've researched it, you, you read people like John Bradsh- Bradshaw. Is that the guy? Is that him? Yeah, Bradshaw. He, he has a, they were using his stuff at the seminary, and Channel 2 did a whole thing, and I videotaped it of this Bradshaw, and he's a new ager. And you know who Christ is, according to Bradshaw? Your inner child. And he says Jesus going into the Egypt and back is, the, is a metaphor for our inner child. In other words, we came into this world, according to Bradshaw, whose materials using used at the seminary, he, we come into the world pristine, and we would have developed into these whole, healthy people, but all the things that happened to us force the inner child into exile. Okay? So the inner child, according to Bradshaw, the inner child goes into exile and like, because the inner child is your Christ and it was like Jesus going to Egypt and then the recovery process is to remove the layers of shaming messages and whatever you deem to, cause, to force the inner child to go into exile so that it becomes safe for the inner child to come back and be your Christ. And so you are your own Savior. <laughs> it doesn't. But that's Bradshaw, and he is one of the darlings of the recovery movement. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, I am an alcoholic, and when I go to my AA meetings, I say my first name, and I say I am an alcoholic. Okay. Now, my opinion is it ticks me off no end when they add all this stuff, a grateful alcoholic, a recovered alcoholic. My understanding of alcoholism is it's a disease. Okay. But the problem with AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, is that they allow anyone in who has this disease and they let anyone choose their own God. Yeah, I know. So by definition, it's not biblically based. I understand. And I'm not saying that people can't go to groups out here in the world to get over some problem. Well, okay, here's, here's what I'm saying. In the church, okay, let's say somebody's got, got anger and they blow off steam and they pull people out of the car and punch them because they've got the parking spot. Yeah, well, that, I, I'm thinking of a, my buddy's uh, dad who used to do that in Chicago. <laughs> you take my spot, my, my, my buddy uh, that I knew. <laughs> yeah, Anger Anonymous is right. He, some guy pulled in front of him, and here was this kid sitting in the car. His dad gets out of the car, opens the door, punches the guy, slams it. All right, have the spot, and it drives off. And, and his son says, Dad. And dad says, good punch in the mouth, never hurt anybody. <laughs> So it could be he needed a group to go to. <laughs> All right, now, I'm not saying, it's not my job to say what people in the world do and how they seek help. 
And, and if you're a Christian and you feel like you need to go somewhere for help, that's between you and God. I don't tell people what sort of help they're free to get. All right? But I'm commenting about the church. That when we come into the church, we know no man after the flesh. Meaning, it doesn't matter if you're a former this, former that, or former anything else, because we're new creatures in Christ. And we, we, and we fellowship, we are all here as one. We're here because Christ was merciful to us. And the reason I don't believe in Christian recovery groups is because we don't believe the underlying doctrine that we were pristine and that there's some pristine inner child to recover. Do you, do you follow me? This is inimical to the gospel. Yeah, we're saved sinners. I don't want to recover the old man. I want to kill him. <laughs> okay. Put him to death. It says crucify. That's what it says in Romans 6. Crucify the old man. There used to be a doctrine in Old English called mortification. Anybody ever heard that? The Puritans talk about mortification. And what it means is putting to death the old man. Now, so I never did write an article on this. And when I was in seminary, when I saw that Bradshaw New Ager being used as a textbook for people studying marriage and family therapy in a seminary, I did go to my advisor and I said, this is loathsome. Do you know how wicked this Bradshaw is? That we are our own Christ? How, how, come, how come we're using this? Well, he wasn't in the therapy part, so he, he was a theologian, so he, didn't, he couldn't answer why they would be using that. But um, what I'm concerned about is that we turn the church into a bunch of therapy groups rather than a place where people are being sanctified. All right? And so knowing someone after the flesh, now part of this is Paul's self-defense because they wanted to judge Paul after the flesh. They said to Paul, you're not very handsome, you're not very articulate, in fact, we don't think much of you at all. <laughs> yeah, Paul's recovering uh, Christian abuser. <laughs> Paul was a recovering Christian abuser. But we know no man after the flesh. In other words, once we're new creatures in Christ, that's our new identity. And we accept people. We would accept into fellowship anybody, no matter what their past was, if they've repented and come to Jesus Christ. And that's a, that's, that's a good thing. And, that, and so the church should be one, not divided. And so what else do we sometimes do? We divide people into... Somebody told me about that they were going to one of these program churches, and literally they, were, they had it divided into, okay, divorced males between 36 and 42. You go to this group. All right. All right. Um, well, whatever that means, all that matters is you're a new Christian, new creature in Christ, Cheryl, and, we're, and you're accepted in the beloved, and we love you. Thank you. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so from now on, from now on, from when on, verse 16, from now on, starting when? Well, since he died, and we all died since, since this happened, that he died and we died, from now on, we don't recognize, and, and the word there is oide, uh, a perfect active indicative, Sort of, sort of to know or to see. Yes, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you're not saying or claiming anything that people can't get help elsewhere. There's a lot of smart people in the world. If you have problems with finance, a financial advisor might be a good thing. Yes. If you have problems with your marriage, some people say, we, we could help you, and you're probably good if you don't smack your wife. Yeah. Or, or, or using just the wisdom that God's given. There's some people that are smarter than other people, especially relative to specific problems. Yeah. But that... That isn't how we get saved. That's not eternal. What we offer in church and why we come to church is because we're seeking something that's eternal, a city that, that, that God built. Amen. And as we pursue that and as God's word has its effect on us, we will change. 
but it's still a good thing to get help if you can if you have problems. Yeah, yeah I don't don't misunderstand me. People call me and say, "Well, is it a sin for me to go to a counselor? Or is it a sin?" I don't prescribe. I, I am not a doctor. And I don't prescribe where people should go. That's between them and the Lord. They can go where they want. And I don't tell people they can't go get help if they feel like they need to go get help. I'm, that's not my job. My job is to teach you the Word of God. All right? And if you've got financial problems and you need to go talk to somebody that knows about finances, that's fine. Go do what you feel like you need to do. I'm not going to judge you. But the church isn't going to be people with money problems in this room, people with uh, 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 sorrow go to this room, and people with this problem. Because that's not how we find sanctification. We find it all, all of us, no matter what our weakness is, are sanctified by the same means. Okay, We've, We all need the same thing. We need the pure Word of God that we may grow thereby. We need prayer. We need fellowship. And those things aren't specific to what we would be after the flesh. Okay, that, that's, what I'm, that's all I'm saying. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling everybody you can't go to the doctor or you can't go... Uh, seek counsel from some smart person, like he says, that maybe knows something that you don't know that you need to know. That's all. That's between you and the Lord. But in the church, we aren't setting up therapy groups. We're we're here as one big group, sinners saved by grace. I, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll give you an amen to that. I think it's important for all of us to realize that as Christians, we now have the Holy Spirit within us that gives us the power to overcome obstacles we couldn't as a non-believer. And we come to the church for encouragement, for God's word, to encourage each other in the faith, uh, because that's where the, that's where the power is going to be. It's, it's an issue of sanctification. I have the Holy Spirit living within me. The Holy Spirit is giving me the power to overcome obstacles I could not overcome in the flesh. Amen. Dean, welcome back. He's visiting from the west. No, Dean is visiting from the left coast. <laughs> no, no, no. All right. I heard that one the other day, the left coast. <laughs> Therefore, from now on, back, back to, to the reverse, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, and that is as judged by fleshly standards. That's what he means when he says, Though we've known Christ according to the flesh. In other words, we used to judge Christ by fleshly standards. We had certain ideas about Jesus, like he was a world religion leader, or he was this offensive person who, who went on the cross and offends us. Or remember, 1 Corinthians, Paul says to, to, the, to the Greeks, it's foolishness, Christ and his cross, and to the Jews, it's an offense. But now that we're converted, now we love him. We love Jesus Christ, our, our Lord and Savior, and we honor him. And we serve him. Now, applying that to us, we recognize no one according to, let's say, fleshly standards or worldly standards, like your translation says. Okay? That means we don't bring into the church all of the old baggage. If any, because it goes on to say in the next verse, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. That's, that's why we don't judge people by worldly standards. And so I think one of the terrible developments uh, in, in the evangelical world, and, and the reason this, I'm churned up about this is because of what happened to the seminary that we were talking about on Jan's show. When that marriage and family therapy degree came in, it just engulfed the seminary, okay, and became the number one most sought-after degree. And the people graduating with it are the ones that are being hired by the big churches. They have one preacher and ten therapists. Now, and they're being trained reading John Bradshaw New Age books in the seminary. Okay? You're your own savior. Now, how's that? So, do you see, my point is, all of that stuff is pushing the actual means of sanctification right out of the church. It's just the church is getting strangled from the inside, and the people come and are not even given the opportunity to be a new creature in Christ. They're just labeled as something and stuck in a group. Okay. I'll, not preaching on that. All right. Uh, yeah, when we get saved, you know, we become a new creature in Christ. And uh, 
and as such, we need the, the food of the Word. That's what helps us to grow. That's what helps us with our problems. Hello. That's what helps us to become sanctified and more like Christ. Some people do fight with weaknesses in certain areas, you know, that maybe they struggled with uh, before they became a Christian. And so some of the, sometimes some of these groups aren't a bad thing, but I think if you're in church and you're in the Word, that's where the true healing is going to come from. Yes, and not only that, it, the way Paul conceives of it in 1 Corinthians 12 is that, yes, we do have various weaknesses, but we also have various gifts. And the weak member, we bestow more comeliness the Divino Schism in the body. I'm just citing that from memory. It may not be perfect. Did you want to say something? Over here. Oh, okay, there and then there. So the fact is that we need to go to church where people have strengths that are different than ours Amen. and not just go to everybody that has the same weakness. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of baffled by a Jesus inner child who can be exiled by our sin. What kind of a Savior can be exiled by a man's behavior? I know. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> I have those videos, by the way. They, Channel 2 was doing a fundraiser, and they were playing this Bradshaw for hours. This was back in the 90s. And I threw videotapes in and recorded it. Because, and it was offensive to me that public TV was putting out New Age teaching as their fundraiser. But then the next year or the year before, they had the Killing Fields, which was the, the eco-feminists uh, um, that were... Uh, claiming that the big problem in world history was is men exist. Right. I just wanted to say really quick. Um, Maybe I, they have a point. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I, uh, I have a BA in psychology, and I thought I was going to go on and become a Christian therapist. I thought I could merge Christianity with psychology and just this topic. Um, I just wanted to say even the word psychology, where we get a lot of these therapy groups, means in the Greek study of the soul, where are we supposed to be looking for that understanding? The worldly point of view, you know, anytime you take away good theology, you're going to end up just with therapy. Um, instead of psychology, we should be looking to, to theology, which is God's word, and that's where we're going to be sanctified and grow in the truth of Christ. Yeah, and that's the point I was making, is that the, the, the degree program in theology, and even as I said, they're shrinking as far as how many even wanted to get it. I heard one of my theology teachers say to the class, well, at least wait until you graduate before you throw your theology books away. What does that mean? Well, they don't think it matters. Even to be a pastor, theology is not important because you're learning to be a people manager. Okay? So the the senior pastor is the senior people manager, and all the other pastors are therapists. And they're not learning theology because it's become archaic. I'm planning to write an article about this, by the way. And I've got some people who are going to be little spies for me. <laughs> i got undercover spies. <laughs> okay, Karen, and we've got to be done. And it's, it's interesting, too, because if you redefine the key problems in people's lives to be all the baggage that they have before coming into Christ then it makes sense to focus on those problems and keep targeting all your remedies to try and meet those through whatever smart methods we might have found. You know. But if the key problem is sin yeah. and wrong standing before God, Amen. then, yes, those other problems are problems, but they're minor in comparison, and what the church ought to be focusing on itself is solving man's biggest problem and not getting sidetracked. I totally agree, Karen. And I, I, even I wrote that article on inner healing, and um, in some of these therapies, did you know that memories aren't diseased? A memory isn't sick. There's no such thing as a sick memory and a healthy memory. Memories are just memories. And if we didn't have any bad memories, we'd never learn anything. Do you have a memory of sticking your hand in the fire? Do you wish it went away? <laughs> well, it's probably a good thing you have that memory because now you don't do that again. And Dickens wrote a whole novel based on a guy who wanted all his bad memories removed. What was the name of it, Keith? Keith told me about it. There's a Dickens novel about a guy. Okay, what was it? Okay, The Man in the Bargain. Oh, the, the Haunted Man and the Ghost Bargain. So this guy wants his memories, bad ones, taken away, and he gets his wish granted. You know how Dickens writes? And it ends up, instead of being heaven on earth, hell on earth for him. Because he becomes this brute, 
right? This really nasty and, and hurts everybody because he has no empathy because he doesn't remember what it's like to be hurt. And so memories aren't sick. Having memories of bad things is something we need in order to avoid those bad things in the future. So the, so the whole idea of the healing of memories is absurd by definition. All right. Enough of that. Um, help us with the chairs. We'll see you upstairs at 1030. <laughs>